0: This is Masters in Business with Barry
1: Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And and what can I say about Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert? Uh, We had a – where do I even begin? We had a wide-ranging conversation about everything from persuasion and communication skills to cartooning and, and writing books. Uh, He and I have been on the opposite side of the Trump phenomena, and I have to say we actually had a uh, very fascinating and civil conversation about what makes Trump so unique and different than everybody else, how he's disrupting politics, how he has won bigly – coincidentally the name of of, uh, the most recent book Scott wrote – and – Scott admits to being to the left of Bernie Sanders, which I think would surprise a lot of the people who criticize him uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. We had a fascinating conversation. Be sure and stay till the very end to listen to that because really it's quite intriguing. And if I had another hour, I probably could have um, continued the conversation for that much longer. So, with no further ado, my conversation with Scott Adams. My extra special guest this week is Scott Adams. He is best known as the creator of the comic strip Dilbert, which appears in over 2,000 newspapers worldwide in 65 countries and 25 languages. He is the author of numerous books, including Dilbert Future and The Joy of Work. His most recent books are How to Fail at Everything and Still Succeed and Win Bigly, He received the National Cartoonist Society Rubin Award and the Newspaper Comic Strip Award in 1997. Scott Adams, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. You seem to come out of a fairly typical corporate background. You worked in banking and technology. How did that road lead to the creation of Dilbert?
0: Well, the corporate thing didn't work out for me. So I, I worked for eight and a half years at a big bank in San Francisco and eight and a half years at, uh, or about eight years at a local phone company. But both of those careers ended for the same reason. Uh, in both cases, my boss called me into my office and said, uh, it turns out the media just discovered that we have no diversity in management. And, and in each case, my boss said, I'm going to tell you plainly, you can't be promoted here. Really? Yeah. Until things balance out a little bit. Now, when I tell this story, people always say, "Ah, stop being a victim, stop complaining." I'm not doing that. I'm telling you what happened.
1: So, how did each of those events lead you to exploring cartooning? You you had been drawing since what? You're 11, something like that? Yeah, when I was a little kid,
0: like <laughs> lots of little kids, I thought, "Hey, I think I'll grow up to be a cartoonist." That's one of the most common really little kid you know dreams. You know, basketball player and cartoonist, the race car driver. Race car driver, yes, astronaut. And I thought I wanted to be Charles Schultz when I grew up. Mm -hmm. But by the time I reached probably age 11, 12, I started to be able to reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and suddenly the, the fantastical world of children started to fall away. You know, Santa Claus wasn't real, et cetera. But I started to think wait a minute. I want to be Charles Schultz, the most famous cartoonist in the world, but there are around 6 billion people in the world maybe back then, and there was only one of him. And I thought, I'm not liking my odds. Maybe I should try to be a lawyer or a businessman or something. So I gave up on the whole cartooning thing and went to traditional economics degree, business world kind of a life. But when it didn't work out, I started to say, what can I do that would not have a boss because I, I noticed that the common element was having a boss. Because my, my uh, success or lack of it in the corporate world didn't have anything to do with my ability or how hard I worked. It was entirely up to what a boss decided for the bosses and the company's own reasons. And I thought, well, I'd like to be free of that. So I, uh, I've tried a number of things over the years. Cartooning was the one that worked. And what I did was I tried to do things which would have a low risk. You know, I wouldn't die if it didn't work out, and I wouldn't be bankrupt if it didn't work out. I would just be tired or embarrassed. You know, those were the worst case scenarios. I saw the world as sort of a a slot machine that you didn't have to put money into, Mm -hmm. meaning that I could just sit there and pull until I got a jackpot. And, and I could win every time if I was willing to sit there long enough and pull. So cartooning was one of those pulls. It wasn't the only one. There were lots of them. I wrote about it and had it failed almost everything and still went big. And uh, it just
1: happened to be the one that worked. So let's talk about cartooning a little bit, because in the beginning, you got a lot of rejection. You pulled the, the lever. You actually were debating, hey, maybe I'm, I've pulled long enough on cartooning and it's not working. But an inspirational letter from a fan kept you going. Tell, uh, am I misstating that? Am I overstating that?
0: You're, you're, you're close. You're in the same zip code. Okay. Let me, let me tell you this story. One day I came home and I was flipping through the channels on TV and there was a show on how to become a cartoonist, of all things. Really? I've never seen it before, but I missed most of the show. And so I wrote down from the closing credits the name of the host and figured out how to send him a snail mail letter. And I said, hey, I missed your show, but could you give me some tips how to become a cartoonist? And a few weeks later, I got a two-page handwritten letter from the host of the show. Jack Cassidy is his name. And he gave me some advice about what books to buy, what materials to use. And then he gave me this advice. He said, it's a really competitive industry and you're going to get rejected a lot, but don't give up. A year goes by. And one day i walk out to my mailbox and there's a letter from the same cartoonist jack cassidy who had given me the original advice and he said he was cleaning his office and he came across my samples and the letter i'd sent him in the bottom of some pile and he said he was just writing to make sure that i hadn't given up and i thought maybe you see something i don't see so i decided to get out my materials and try again And by then I had this idea for a character called Dilbert, who was roughly based on my work experience, and uh, sent it out to the major syndicates. Most of them rejected me. Once I thought I had all the rejections, um, I put my materials back in the closet again. And then the phone rings a few weeks later. And it was a woman who said she, uh, she worked for a company I never heard of, some company called United Media. And they said they saw my samples. I didn't know how and wanted to offer me a contract to be a syndicated cartoonist, the biggest break you could possibly have in cartooning. But I'd never heard of this company. And so I said, um, I haven't heard of your company, this United Media Company. I didn't send my samples to anybody with that name. So I'd feel more comfortable if you had some references. <laughs> you know, Is there somebody you've worked with before, a cartoonist, who has been published in any way You know, on a, on a pamphlet or a greeting card, anything like that? And there was this long pause, and then she said, yeah, we handle Peanuts <laughs> and Garfield and Robo-Man and Nancy. And when she got to about the 12th name on the list, <laughs> I realized my negotiating position had been compromised, and I got myself a lawyer and got a contract, and, and that's the how rest it The rest is started. history.
1: That, that's hilarious. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, about that process of syndication. Uh, how does that work? What is the economics of syndication? What rights do you give up? What rights do you retain?
0: Well, first of all, uh, the old syndicate was bought by the new syndicate, so mm-hmm. it's the universal, Uclick uh, mm-hmm. is the syndicate now. And the way that works, syndication, uh, and it works for cartoonists and columnists, is that once you do your contract with the syndication company, they do the marketing and the selling and the distribution so that you can just concentrate on the creating. And depending on your your leverage, you might you might make a deal where you split the revenue fifty fifty, but mm-hmm. but they're picking up a lot of expenses. Um, and then, as you get uh, more successful, you might be able to negotiate a a better mix than that.
1: Mm-hmm. that that seems pretty reasonable. Um, so you're working in corporate America for a big bank and uh, a telco company. I've always thought the Dilbert character was the man in the middle. He's got an incompetent boy, boss above him. He's got lazy coworkers adjacent to him. He's got aggressive salespeople who always promise the world and expect him to deliver. Um, and then annoying um, mentors and interns beneath him. What was the motivation for the experience? Because some people have said, well, Scott Adams is obviously Dilbert. But you've kind of pushed back on that.
0: Well, all of the characters are either some part of my own personality, usually not the full personality, because mm-hmm. cartoon characters work better if they have some distinguishing characteristic that's usually a flaw.
1: Right. Not fully fleshed out, but they are this key characteristic.
0: Right. So if you're looking to, to develop your own cartoon, what you want to look for is, can you describe the character in a word or two? Mm-hmm. Garfield's a cat. You know, Dilbert is a nerd. You know, he's, depending on what word you want to use, he's a he's an office worker. You know, Alice is angry. Wally is lazy. Dogbert is scheming. So if you can't... The Elbonians? The Elbonians are just the every other country. You know, I, I, I learned that trick, that if you use any other country that's a real country... There's just nothing you can do humor-wise. <laughs> it's going to come back, so I had to develop uh, a, an imaginary country uh, just to have somebody who's in another country doing foolish things.
1: And and the fact that it's underwater, what what's the significance of that?
0: It's under mud, so under the, mud? the the Elbonians are always in uh, waist-deep mud, <laughs> uh,
1: but that's never explained. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about how the strip has evolved over the years. You've gotten some pushback from other cartoonists, uh, including some people who, I have to admit to being perplexed by this, claim that you're basically excusing bad corporate behavior. (laughs) I don't see it that way. How do you you see, do you, first of all, do you respond to other cartoonists slagging your work? And what do you think of the sort of, um, I don't know, pushback to the charming simplicity of the message of somebody stuck in the middle of a corporate drone type of a workplace?
0: Well, first of all, the uh, the hierarchy in cartooning especially is that the people who are very successful tend not to criticize other cartoonists. They always punch up. That's legit. And, and the people who are lower in the rank are pretty sure that everybody above them got there by luck or or the public doesn't understand how bad it is, and they can't understand why it's successful. So the people who are not yet successful are just brutal, right? <laughs> the people who are peers or uh, or above me in success, cartooning, are almost never that way. It, mm-hmm. the, it's the rarest thing in the world.
1: You also, I'm going to interrupt right here and say you have frequently discussed the role of luck in everybody's life. Luck is so important. If this person didn't follow up, Cassidy didn't follow up with that email, that letter pre-email, who knows what might have might have happened. Yeah,
0: luck is luck is always the big variable, but I think the mistake is thinking that you can't control luck. Mm-hmm. Now you can't control actual, you know, random events, but you can certainly put yourself in places where more luck can happen. For, what, for what's exi- the
1: phrase? Luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Well, is that there, about right?
0: There's that. Plus, there's the amount of energy. If you put more energy into the universe, if you if you try to start ten companies, you know, one after another, the odds of one of them working out by luck is pretty good. Mm-hmm. If you try one thing once and then you give up, your odds of finding luck are very low. So you can do a lot to go where the luck is. It's the reason I moved from upstate New York to San Francisco, because there was just more happening, more opportunity, more chances for luck.
1: And and much better weather. Much better weather. To say, to say the least. Have, have you ever considered dramatically shifting the, the way Dilbert's life has progressed. You've introduced new characters. You've introduced new plot lines. But he seems to be pretty consistently Dilbert all the way through. Well,
0: actually, I, um, I did make one big change early in the strip. The first several years, it wasn't really about the workplace. Mm-hmm. He was a guy who had a job, but it was about things he did with his dog and things mm-hmm. he did at home. And it was just about the time that email was just becoming a thing. And I had email early because it was something we did at work, so I got it before most of the public. And the few people who got on email didn't have anybody to email, so they didn't have anybody to send a message to. But I started publishing my email in the comic strip, and then people all over the country would say, hey, I got somebody to write to. I'm going to tell you what I like about your strip and what I don't like. And consistently, they said, we love it when he's at work doing workplace stuff. We don't like it as much when he's at home. So because my background is an MBA and an economics degree and not art, I did not have any artistic integrity to lose because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't start with any. And I said, oh, what's the point of making art that the audience doesn't want to see? So I gave the audience what they wanted, more workplace, and that, that's when it all took off.
1: Do you, do you ever get specific ideas from people who shoot you an email and saying, hey, this happened at my job?
0: Yeah, most of what I write is based on other people's suggestions. So I used to get, a, get those suggestions by email. Before that, it was from my own experience. And today, every, every week or two, I'll just uh, send down a tweet and say, hey, what's bothering you about your job? And I'll get hundreds of responses. Hundreds. And uh, usually that writes my, my week of Dilbert right there.
1: That, that, that's absolutely astonishing. So I have to bring up very early in the cycle before the Republican nomination in 2016 was wrapped up, you had identified Trump as having a different approach to messaging, that he was basically steamrolling not only the rest of the nominees uh, of Republicans, and you said he would win the Republican nomination, but you also said he's likely to win the whole shebang at at a point in history where- That was just a wild forecast. And it turned out you were correct. So tell us, what did you see in 2015 that so many other people completely missed?
0: Just by chance, I have a weird combination of skills and experience that gave me a different filter on the situation. One is I grew up in New York, Mm -hmm. upstate, but it's close enough to get sort of the the New York sensibility. So that helped me understand when Trump was serious and when he was kidding, Mm -hmm. which seems to be a huge problem with people. They literally can't tell when he's just sort of kidding, or he's using hyperbole to get a point.
1: The famous line is, take him seriously, but not literally. Right. Uh,
0: The other thing I have going for me is a business background, and so I could understand, for example, when he uses hyperbole to tell you the economy is doing better than it's ever been, it's going to be the greatest thing he understands that the economy is a psychology engine. Mm -hmm. We don't have a shortage of materials. We don't have a resource problem. We have a psychology problem, and he was looking to fix it directly. Now, I also have a background as a trained hypnotist. So I could recognize, and I've also been studying the ways of persuasion in general for decades. So when I was watching the president work, on the campaign trail, I was seeing the techniques of persuasion used at the highest level I've ever seen in public. And and to me, it looked like he was bringing a flamethrower to a stick fight. <laughs> and, it, and I thought it was actually an easy prediction.
1: You know, it's funny. New Yorkers kind of know him as a goofball businessman wannabe. He's not a huge developer. He's not this. He's not that. But he's been an incredibly successful person, at managing and manipulating the media and i think a lot of people completely miss that skill set yeah. there are few better than donald trump at dominating the news cycle even when he says something that's not true and everybody rushes to correct him the next day all we're talking about is is still donald trump
0: yeah and you saw that right from the start at the first republican debate when he was asked the very first question, Megyn Kelly asked him this incredibly toxic, damaging, career-ending, you know, <laughs> campaign-ending question. For about anyone his, else, anyway. For anyone else about his bad statements about women. And instead of apologizing like somebody might do or or avoiding the question in the normal way that people do it, he's he, he interrupts her with, only Rosie O'Donnell. Now, first of all, completely not true, right. but did it matter? It didn't because he took all of the energy out of the question, which was lethal. Mm-hmm. And he moved it to his answer, which was so much fun and so provocative and so enjoyed by his base, especially because they have the right. feeling about Rosie O'Donnell that I said, oh my goodness, he just sucked all of the energy out of the problem and put it into something that people can't stop talking about right. while forgetting the question. And I literally stood up and walked toward the television. Like, my I, I had a tingle on my arms, and I thought, I think I just saw the future.
1: How to win bigly by dominating the news cycle and sucking all the oxygen out <laughs> of the room.
0: Yeah, the, the, the actual subtitle of the book is uh, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. When I first wrote that, and when I first started saying facts don't matter, back in 2015, people just rejected that sure. as ridiculous. Now you see those words, those exact words, the facts don't matter. And they're talking about in terms of our opinions, not the real world. And the real world, if you walk in front of a bus and hit you, it hits
1: matters. you, that matters. Physics matters, facts don't but, matter.
0: But your decision about what to do that day might, might not be driven by facts. It's about your emotion, how you feel, everything else. So now I would say that that's common way of thinking. That, and, and I predicted in 2015 as well, and this is in WinBigley, that Trump would do more than win the presidency. I said he would tear the fabric of reality apart and that we would see, see ourselves and how we fit into the universe completely differently because of the experience. And you're watching the fact checkers say, um, he got 7,000 things wrong <laughs> in the past 24 hours. Why is nobody acting differently because of this? Well because the facts don't matter. You know, as long as he's persuading us in a direction that people feel comfortable going, better economy, beat ISIS, you know, have good news in North Korea, people are okay with it.
1: I want to talk about the book, How to Fail Out at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, because there are some really fascinating ideas in that book, one of which is don't have goals, have a system. I, I was intrigued by that. Explain the thought process there.
0: Yeah. So the distinction there is a goal is you've, you've got a very specific idea of what you want. Uh, but a system is something you do every day that gets you to a better place, but you don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. So an example would be if you go to college and get a degree. You might not know exactly where that's going to lead, but there's a virtually a guarantee that you'll have more options to do whatever you want.
1: In, in the book, you use the example, don't set a goal of losing 20 pounds. Set a goal of eating more healthy.
0: Well, or even more specifically, uh, using the topic of diet, I say make it a lifelong practice to increase what you know about nutrition, to understand that this is better than that, you know, to to understand, for example, that if you have a choice between a plain white potato and pasta, that the pasta has a better glycemic index. So if you, if you like them the same, eat the pasta, you're going to be better off. That's just one example. But you could learn uh, almost forever about nutrition so that you always have an option of the healthier versus the less healthy choice. I I tell people to make it a habit to uh, practice trying to figure out how to get the best flavor and the things that are good for
1: them. Let's talk about the combination of mediocre skills, which I'm also amused by, how do a series of mediocre skills add up to something that's very successful?
0: Yeah, this is the idea of the talent stack. Mm-hmm. So a talent stack is where instead of becoming uh, the one best person in the world at a specific skill, which only works for a few people. So if you're Tiger Woods, learn to golf and you know just ride that horse as hard as you can. But for most of us, we don't have a Tiger Woods level skill at anything. But what we do have is the ability to put together a stack of talents in which we're pretty good, maybe top 20% uh, of the, compared to the rest of the world, just because the rest of the world isn't practicing those skills in the first place. Mm-hmm. And if you combine them right, you get a very powerful package. For example, um, as a cartoonist, uh, it's no secret that I'm not very good at drawing And you would think, that's pretty important to being a cartoonist. You should be a pretty good artist, but I'm not. I can, however, draw better than most people. Likewise, I'm not the best writer in the world, but I can write better than most people. I'm not the funniest guy in the room, but I'm funnier than most people. I don't know the most about business, but I know a lot, so it gives me a topic to write about. So I probably have a dozen or so Modest skills, which happen to sum up to something that's uh, commercially extraordinary.
1: So let's talk about your process. Uh, I love to write in the morning. I feel like it's a fresh reboot. You shake the etch a sketch screen empty and you begin clean. You also like to write in the mornings, but for a different Reason, explain why you enjoy the mornings.
0: Yeah, that's that's part of my system as well. There are some things you can do in certain energy states that you can't do in others. So in the morning, my brain is at at its very best. So between 4 and 10 in the morning, I'm absolutely the most creative, most productive, best concentration. By noon, I'm a little burned out, and it's Mm -hmm. a perfect time to go to the gym because I don't want to think too hard, but my body's in perfect shape. Right. And then by evening, I'm ready to do, you know, more fun stuff. So I I try to match my energy state to the task, which is something you can only do if you don't have a boss most of the time. Right. If your boss is saying, yeah, you know, I want you to be here in the meeting from 8 to 10, you don't get to say, you know, boss, that was the only time I was going to do something useful, and you just took it from me. So that's a big, big incentive to find a way that to control your own schedule. Because, uh, and I often say this, happiness is not caused by whether you can get the stuff you want. Happiness is caused, as uh, even more, by getting the stuff when you want it. It's not what you have, because we, we live in a world where you can often get you know what you need, but you can't often get it when you need it. You can't often sleep when you're tired, eat when you're hungry, exercise when you have the energy, and right when your brain is is the best. So to the extent that you can develop a system so that your energy is always right for the task, you're
1: way ahead. So let's talk a little bit about the happiness ratio. I, I love that concept of having a certain... So you and I will disagree about certain things. The ability to self-focus your thoughts on happy ideas and create a sort of self-awareness of positivity, am I overstating that, is is an important aspect.
0: Yeah, you can can manage your own brain uh, like you can manage shelf space. Mm -hmm. So if you don't manage your brain, it's going to think about whatever it thinks about. And for most of us, that will drift off to negative thoughts. There's something that happened in the past, there's something bad that might happen tomorrow. But if you tell yourself well let me think about what could go right let me think about what i appreciate let me think about who, who i'm in love with let me think about that you can you can just use up the shelf space and the more the,
1: happy thoughts to negative thoughts gives you a better ratio yeah, it, and that affects your whole outlook
0: right uh, so so assuming that the things you think are just the things you think Is sort of a a losing strategy. A better system is to manage what you're thinking, because you can make yourself think about other topics. For sure. You have that control. And if you do that, your body will respond, your health will respond, your, you know, every part of your, you know, your immune system will be stronger, because we know that negativity works against all that stuff.
1: So let me push, I'm with you on this. You and I are completely simpatico on the happy thought ratio. There are other ways to phrase that, but- We're in the same camp there. I have to push back a little bit on the daily affirmations, which look to me like survivorship bias, meaning, well, the ones that don't work out, we don't really focus on. But hey, I used to say affirmations about Dilbert, and Dilbert worked out, therefore. So how do you separate the daily affirmations that work from the ones that don't, or am I just being... You know a stick in the mud
0: it might not matter which is which is the interesting thing I'm, I'm not sure if i'll be able to expand on it completely but what we're talking about is the practice of writing down what you want mm-hmm. uh every day so you might say i scott adams will be a famous cartoonist now that works against the systems way of of working because it's better to have a system that could get you lots right. of different outcomes so if you're doing an affirmation, it's probably better to say I'll be wealthy than to say I'll be rich in a specific way because mm. you want to leave open the options. Now, the idea here is that there is there's something about focusing that gives you a better result. And the, the repeating it or the writing it down every day for
1: – Consistency be, according yeah. to Bob Cialdini and right. the so, whole uh, – so Yes, yeah,
0: just, just the process of doing that sort of reprograms you into a better collector of information, meaning that you can tune your brain to notice things you wouldn't notice. You know how you're in a crowd sometimes and you'll hear, hear people say, wah, 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 background noise, wah, wah, wah. Scott. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. And like you can pick your name out of a crowd sure. without trying. So whatever you tune your brain to, you notice things that are useful. So part of what might be good about affirmations is that uh, by concentrating on it, it sort of allows you to see the world. It expands your, your perception. And by the way, there's science behind that. The
1: availability there's, bias, you go out and get a jeep and suddenly you see jeeps everywhere. Because you're familiar with it.
0: Yeah, but beyond that, there's also been studies that show that if you approach the world as an optimist, and you you just sort of keep optimistic thoughts in your head, that um, you actually increase your perception, and this can be shown, that um, you'll you'll notice things that other people wouldn't notice. Let me give you an Mm -hmm. example. So part of the test was, this was Wiseman, was the guy who did this test, Dr. Wiseman, and he showed people... uh, same copy of a newspaper, but they were divided into two groups. One group considered themselves uh, lucky, and mm-hmm. another group considered themselves unlucky. S- self-evaluated? Self-evaluated. Okay. Uh, of course, there's no such thing as actual luck. Not, mm-hmm. Neither of those groups could f- perform better on randomized tests. But he said, count up the number of photographs in these newspapers, and the people who were unlucky or considered themselves unlucky— counted the the number, and on average, they got the right number. Let's say it was 42. The people who considered themselves lucky also got the right number, on average, but they were done in seconds, whereas the other people took minutes. What was the difference? In each of the newspapers that both groups saw, on page two, in big words, it said, stop counting the photographs. There are 42 of them. Now, If you expect to be lucky... You're looking for luck because you expect it. So the people who are looking for luck just had a broader perceptual plane, and they noticed that sentence. The other said, well, my task is to look at photographs. Where are the photographs? One, two, three. I sure am bored. What a boring day. It looks like another bad day for me. <laughs> so your your outcome can actually change what you recognize as opportunities.
1: That, that's fascinating. Can you stick around a little bit? I have a ton more questions. Absolutely. We have been speaking with Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure to come back and listen to the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all sorts of things, ranging from cartooning to how to win bigly in political battles. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Uh, you can find that at iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. Check out my daily column at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Scott, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to having this conversation for a while. I have so many questions. I have to start by saying how annoyed I am. I have most of your books, and including various Dilbert collections, but um, the early Dilbert—Scott Adams' corporate books, as opposed to Dilbert collections, and we moved about three years ago and we're mostly impact and I went through a bunch of boxes of books in the basement and over the weekend and I could not find anything that's making me Well that's why I write more.
0: There you yeah, go. I, so I just count on you to lose the old ones.
1: <clears throat> and you uh speaking of writing more, you have Win Bigley out this month in paperback. Is that is that right?
0: That's right. For those people who wanted to wait for the the cheaper version.
1: So let's talk a little bit about uh politics. And by the way, your email is still public. So for angry people, don't email me. You cannot email Scott um, about whatever. But uh, you got a ton of pushback on a lot of things that you wrote about Trump, even though many of those things have come to pass and that your forecasts and expectations have proven out. How do you you deal with that sort of... um, Pushback. Is it just that people can't see what they don't want to see, or?
0: Yeah, I would. I should say first of all that I'm not a Republican. I'm not a conservative. I consider myself left of Bernie. So when I was talking about Trump, <laughs> when I was talking about Trump, I was talking about his technique, and I think there are some unique things he brings, such as the way he can he can talk a, an economy up, uh, and the way he could talk to North Korea, for example. So uh, I was really trying to find the positive and I trusted the rest of the media to find the negative. You know, that's their job. They do a really good job at it. Some would say too good a job at it. Um, And uh, having been in the public for a long time with Dilbert, I'm used to withering criticism on a daily basis and you you do kind of get used to it.
1: Thick skin develops after 20, you're coming up on, is it, 25 years is that right
0: 30 years of Dilbert um, but what's what, amazing what is different when I talk about politics is that recently just in the last year or so uh, I've discontinued appearing in public for actually security reasons come on is yeah. that is that yeah that's true I it's literally in my opinion dangerous for me to be in a big crowd these days because you don't know it only takes one knot in the crowd to At, to, to ruin your day
1: as we've seen recently what's taken place in Pittsburgh and what's taking Place with mail bombs and God knows what else. Um, well, but let me let me,
0: let me uh, kind of put a frame on that. Here's here's my observation of why the world looks crazier. Mm-hmm. And it all came, it all started when the technology allowed us to measure for the first time exactly how the news was being received by the audience. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you could tell that this headline got you more clicks than that sure. headline, this approach got you more than the others, the fiduciary responsibility of management of people in the media and the press was to follow the clicks. Right. You've got to go where the profit is, because you're a public company in most cases, and the shareholders require that. The, the BuzzFeed model, so right. to speak. Yeah, and you can't really avoid that and still stay in business. So once you got that, you, you had a, a press which through no fault of their own, no bad intentions, just following the clicks, had to go where the the emotional centers of the brain were most stimulated, because that's what makes people click, makes them act. And so the news went from even attempting to give an unbiased view of the world to not really trying to do that at all, um, but rather trying to give a view that they know they're, they're their base, whoever's watching them already, will interact with, will like. So once you get in that situation, it has to get worse because the business model won't change. You know, that, there, there's nothing that's going to replace the model where you make a lot of money by getting people to click. So uh, any calls for people to be more civil are missing a basic understanding of how the world works. People are not going to be nicer because they know they ought to. Uh, yeah they they are their opinions are coming from what they read, what other people say, how they feel about stuff. And the business model is now designed to keep them permanently in fight or flight mode.
1: you know, I literally have a column. We're recording this the day the column uh, should be out in about fifteen minutes, how to have a financial debate without mailing pipe bombs uh, to <laughs> each other because, If you believe the founding fathers and if you believe um, the marketplace of ideas, we should be able to debate these things, not with our Danny Kahneman system one emotional fight or flight response, more coolly and and actually have a debate about the merits of these issues. But it sounds like, at least in the public political sphere— We don't get past that immediate response very often, do we? Yeah, we've
0: developed two separate worlds. I call it two movies on one screen. Mm -hmm. So uh, the people on opposite sides believe they're looking at the facts and making a perfectly objective uh, opinion based on what they see as the facts. Trouble is, the other side thinks exactly the same thing, and they're looking at, for the most part... The same facts. There are some differences about the different silos. You know, we'll have a little bit of different information. For example, one silo uh, does not like George Soros. (laughs) The other silo doesn't talk about it. So those things are different. But for the most part, we're looking at the same information and
1: having completely different conclusions. So let's talk about that because I there's a couple issues here, and I want to unpack them. But you raise like a really interesting question to me. So first of all. I'm a New York, pretty middle of the road guy, working in finance, Jewish background. I have never felt oppressed or discriminated against, but clearly within the little bubble that's my world, um, I, I'm not discriminated against. And even go back 50 or 100 years, the reason firms like Goldman Sachs came about, or some of the bigger Freed Frank, or K Scholler, or some of the bigger law firms came about was because Jews couldn't get hired at the, the WASP firms, and so they created their own. So I was fortunate to be born into part of the world where I don't really experience discrimination, although I certainly see it online. And to me, when I when I see the way George Soros' name is used, it always seems to be a totem or a dog whistle for the anti-Semites? For people, you can name a million different financiers. It used to be the Trilateral Commission or go down the list of all the crazy different people who were pulling the levers of power behind the scenes. How do you respond when people say, hey, George Soros' is dog whistle uh, to anti-Semites, he's a billionaire, he's Jewish, therefore, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we're gonna let people know exactly what we're saying.
0: Well, let me tell you the experiment I've been running on Twitter recently. Um, I couldn't understand what all the the complaints about Soros were about. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's just because I've not exposed myself to it. If I, if I read the right link, if I read the right stuff, I would maybe have an opinion. So I asked people, can you tell me, in summary, what the problem is? And people couldn't do it, not even close. But they would say, oh, but if you look at this link, look at this interview, watch this video. Most of the video links were to an edited video he did for 60 Minutes, in which it's taken out of context to make it look like he really enjoyed the Holocaust. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's essentially how it's being portrayed, or that he was a Nazi collaborator. If you see the whole clip, without the editing, it doesn't look like that. So part of it is that people are looking at the wrong video and they, uh, through no fault of their own, they believe it's it's the full story. So it starts with that, just a, a, some editing job. But then you go, okay, but what's he doing now? I get why you don't like what he did when he was 14, even if you have the wrong information. But what's your complaint now? And people will send me these long rambling articles in which there's mind reading Written into the article. In other words, the author will say, and then George Soros wants to destroy the fill in the blank, you know, destroy our republic, destroy Israel. He wants to destroy something. And I'm thinking to myself, I'll bet he never said that. I'll bet there's no quote of him saying, I want to destroy, you know, whatever they love. But everybody is sure they've seen it, they've seen enough information. Uh, that they have that opinion. So then I ask a simple question. Okay, you don't like what organizations he's funding because those organizations are doing things which you, f- you think are destructive to the United States, to Israel, or whatever you're complaining about. And I say, can you tell me the percentage that you, of the budget of those people he's funding, and then give me an idea what bad things they're doing so I know if he's like the big reason that some bad stuff is happening. Nobody has that list, or at least nobody I can find can forward it to me in a consumable form. I'll get endless uh, word salad descriptions about the bad things he's funding to destroy the world, but nobody seems to be able to actually describe it in any coherent way. So I can't even form an opinion about whether he's something I should be opposed to or in favor of. I literally can't even form an opinion. So what I'm observing is a mass hysteria mm-hmm. kind of reaction. And and part of the way that you can tell it's, um, it's not based on facts is that it's limited to one silo, right? The people on the left, it's invisible to them. Right. It's just not even a question. But,
1: but it's so far along to the people on the right. Ken McCarthy is the guy teed up to replace uh, Paul Ryan. He tweeted something about Soros funding the caravan coming from Guatemala to the United States, when it reaches that level, it makes you stop and say, what's going on here? And to me, the common thread through all of, uh, at least on the right, I find the left and the right are, it's not identical and the crazy is different in different ways. And I'm very anti-PC culture. The left tends to embrace that. The right has something unique, which the left doesn't. Fox News is a very different animal than CNN or MSNBC. I'm happy to say every media outlet has a bias. There's no, I don't think anybody could disagree with that. But Fox News behaves like it's a wholly owned subsidiary. And that's a quantitative difference from everything else. Agree or disagree?
0: Well, let me put it in this frame. It's my observation that the side that's out of power is the craziest while they're out of power. So while Obama was in power, Fox News was talking about birtherism. Right. You know, uh, Donald Trump was talking u- about u- birtherism. Yeah, Uranium One, etc. Um,
1: Benghazi email server. Go right. down the whole list.
0: So, so you know, nobody's innocent of pushing stories that you know don't pass all the fact-checking, but. At the moment, because Trump is in office, it seems obvious to me that Fox has the advantage that they can talk about real things like, oh, the economy is doing well, and North Korea is going well, et cetera. So why why don't but, they? They spend they a
1: lot of time on other I'm always back and forth between well, but, the two of them. So
0: I'm giving nobody a pass here. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that in a relative craziness scale, the one who's out of power will act crazier while they're out of power, until they get back in power. Because Fox News can talk about real things that are good things, and they've got a factual basis for that. Mm -hmm. If you're anti-Trump, say CNN, MSNBC, you talk about things like, well, I think if we saw his tax returns, there'd be a problem. Or I think when Mueller is done, we'll find something we don't know that we don't like about Russia and Trump. Or I think he's going to say something in the future that will blow up the world. Or I think this violence that happened is because something he said, although we should probably talk about you know, those sorts of things separately. Um, because I think it deserves its own topic. So I think that you see a lot of mind-reading, imaginary mm-hmm. Trump derangement syndrome on the left because he's in power and he's, he's changing their world in a way they don't like. If, if Trump uh, you know, left office and you know, just say Nancy Pelosi took over the presidency in, in a few years— it would just reverse, and Fox News would well, we, be making up stuff, and, and CNN would be reporting more facts.
1: We we clearly saw Obama derangement syndrome, and before that, we clearly saw Bush derangement syndrome. Right, There's, right. there's no doubt. I, I'm fond of pointing out that the def, so-called deficit hawks, the people who are concerned about deficit spending, is directly a function of who's in power. Of course. So when George Bush is in, in the office— The Democrats are saying, what do you mean you want a big tax cut that's not funded and a war of choice that's going to cost trillions of dollars? Then the Democrats come into the office and we have to rescue the banks and we need a stimulus and we need this. Uh, And now the Republicans are talking about it. And then that reverses. Now Trump is in office and we have a big tax cut and the deficit has gone up. It's always a function of who's out of power. But the question that I raise is, is there a qualitative difference to that derangement syndrome um, between each side, or are you suggesting it's just strictly who's ever out of power is angry and they say and do things that are are crazy?
0: The the two biggest variables are <clears throat> who who's in and out of power, and then the personality of the person in the office. Is mm-hmm. there is there something about them that's special? Trump is special in you know lots of ways. Mm-hmm. So he he uh, tweaks people's feelings harder than anybody's ever tweaked feelings. No doubt. Um, so you should expect that every, everything that's a normal bias becomes a super bias in this situation, and that's what we see.
1: So we're recording this about a week before the midterms. What do you think happens? Uh, any thoughts? You're not a political analyst, but you have some insight into how both sides communicate. Sometimes they're more effective, sometimes they're less effective. What, what do you think uh, is the outcome here?
0: So I think it's tough for people in my position to call individual races, because it probably has more to do with the matchups. And, right. You know, no, the,
1: I mean, generally, who takes the House, who takes the Senate, well, what happens in the governorships? Right. So uh,
0: in, in general, you need to know a lot of the details to make a good overall prediction. So I'll stick with what I feel comfortable with. Uh, it looks like Republicans are heading for a, an historic turnout. Like a a jaw dropping amount of turnout. Mm -hmm. And I think they're holding, they're keeping their powder dry. Uh, I I think Republicans have, as a a characteristic, if I can generalize, they like to act more than they like to talk. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're going to be surprised the way people were surprised about the election in 2016, the Republicans turn out. And then the other prediction is that it's going to be closer than people uh, imagined a year ago. Purple wave, not a blue wave. I think it could uh this'll be the most extreme I'm not sure I want to call this a prediction, but if things go the way that the the world has been going for the last couple of years, it almost seems like whatever is the best movie plot is what happens. Mm-hmm. That would that would result in almost a deadlock in the house, meaning it would be so close that there's something about it, one of the one of the well, somebody who got elected, maybe there's some doubt about the vote. I think we're not going to get a clean outcome. It's possible that we'll hmm. we'll have something that's so close to even that there will be enough things in doubt that we
1: wonder who even won. I, I will I will concur by saying if under normal circumstances in a midterm election, the party out of power usually gains seats, both in the House and at the state assembly level. But if anybody can steal defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, the Democrats know how to do that. That said, by the time this broadcasts, the results are probably in, and I'm guessing the Democrats take the House. Uh, I have no idea what happens in the Senate, but like, like you said, this is very tough to do. Neither of us are political analysts, and we don't really know um, what the outcome is. But I'm I'm intrigued by your perspective of the communication that takes place and how people are influenced. Um, I would imagine the Democrats should be more motivated to come out and vote only because the Republicans got what they want. They got their tax cut, they got Kavanaugh. They shouldn't be as motivated, but who can tell? Your 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 position is he is a great motivator and therefore they're gonna come out and vote.
0: Well there there's also uh there are a number of other influences. One is that people are more motivated by a fear of loss than they are motivated by, hey, I might guess something. The Democrats are trying to guess something, and the Republicans are trying to prevent losing what they've already gotten. Mm -hmm. Those are different motivations. And usually the person who's trying to prevent a loss is going to get off the couch before the person who's like, well, if I vote, something good might happen. That's a lesser motivation.
1: Classic risk aversion.
0: Right. And- so there's that. Um, but I also think the, the Democrats might be more transparent about how much, um, let's see, how much energy they have on their side. Mm-hmm. You can see them dancing in the streets. You can see them talking. You can see them uh, registering people at apparently record rates. But the, the Republicans are sleepers. And and this is weird, but I think you might see a repeat of 2016 just because Republicans enjoyed it so much the first time. (laughs) In other words, they saw the model where, well, we didn't talk about it, but we showed up and voted. You saw what happens. Well, the the argument
1: is they, but they, if you look at total votes cast, Trump got less votes than Hillary did in the presidential election. And the GOP got less votes than the Democrats did in Congress. However, they got the right votes in the right states for the electoral college and for the individual Congress people, yeah, that
0: that obviously makes a, a huge difference, and you can't discount that. But there's there's a big energy issue too, and uh, that might be the energy might be the difference between that one or two percent in either direction, and that's really all that's in play. People huh. people have largely made up their minds. Sure, but they there there may be one two percent who were going to vote, but it's raining or. Right. You know, they don't have a babysitter, and how hard are you going to try?
1: So you think you think the Republicans are more motivated than the Democrats realize?
0: I uh, I think it's a big sleeper, and huh. and they're going to break some records.
1: That that is quite fascinating. You mentioned something earlier, by the way. I love that you and I disagree about a lot of things and can actually engage in a civil debate, where online it seems so few people can do that.
0: <laughs> well, if people were polite online like they are in person online would be fine too well
1: that that's the the um the automobile pedestrian disagreement when people yell stuff from the safety of their steel and glass enclosure that you would never say walking down the street and online seems to be that indulgence of id seems to be encouraged when you're online people people forget that you're not dealing with a robot. You're dealing with a human being on the other side. It's very easy to lose sight of that when you're just punching something into a little Twitter square and hitting tweet. And- yeah,
0: probably you know 20 times a day at minimum, somebody will come onto my Twitter feed and say some version of, your cartoons are terrible, you're an idiot. And that's all they'll say. There's nothing else. And I think to myself, well, what exactly was your motivation there? Right. It, it had to just feel good. right? So I think they just get a little charge and being able to hurt somebody they don't know that they've got a problem with.
1: That that's doesn't seem like it's a positive or healthy way to deal with a disagreement. I don't do New Year's resolutions, but I made a resolution this year to try and be nicer on Twitter. And you would be shocked at how often somebody says something that is you know, There's a legitimate point there, but it's lost in the obnoxiousness and the anger. And when you just respond with a factual statement about, well, here's the data source I used and this was the basis of that, the person will then turn around and say, oh, thanks for that. By the way, I love masters in business. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm like, wait a second. You were just a total jerk. How- <laughs> it, it, and I learned that a long time ago, and it's easy to get caught up in the emotion and forget, these are real people you're dealing with.
0: Yeah, I might have different people following me because I've never, it's pretty rare that I could send them better information and have them say, oh, yeah, you changed my mind. You, usually it's, uh, you know, your link is crazy and you're crazy. And you They know. don't
1: say they've changed their mind. They said, oh, I like the radio show. Like they <laughs> still haven't walked back whatever, whatever data point. You know, I love when people tell me, well, you didn't inflation adjust that. I can't inflation adjust height. It's just the guy's height. What are you talking about? Yeah. So, so that's sort of, you know, you get sort of stuff. Like I,
0: that. I, I do get the, uh, it's not that uncommon to get somebody who will insult me while complimenting me, you know, and they will say, yeah, I love your show. You're crazy about this. Uh, yeah. You know, so the, I, I don't know if I should block them because they've got these weird, uh, insulting ways to be my friend. and
1: Are are you familiar with the soft block? We were just discussing this in the office the other day. The mute? Soft block is, if somebody's following you, I shouldn't... Well, normally I would say I wouldn't reveal this because this is a secret trick. (laughs) But the old joke is, if you want to hide something, bury it in the back of a podcast, nobody will hear it. Um, So someone's following you, and you don't want to block them, but you're tired of their crap. So you block and then immediately unblock them. And what that does is it makes them unfollow you, and then you mute them, and so now you don't see their stuff. They're no longer getting your stuff, but they don't know they've been unfollowed, and everybody's life just goes on their separate paths with, let's just agree to divorce and move forward. It's the Twitter case of an amicable divorce. You've changed my life. Uh, So I have to give credit to um, my partner, Josh Brown, who claims to have invented this in 2010. I discovered it independently five years later. I'm like, this is a very effective technique to – because once you block somebody, then it's like, oh, that idiot Scott Adams blocked. Oh, Riddhal, he's a jerk. He blocked me. <laughs> so instead – block, but you have to do it immediately so they can't see it. It's block, unblock, and then mute. And we all just move along with our lives.
0: That's brilliant. I've been calling people Nazis and then blocking them. But...
1: <laughs> That's funny. So, it's... so let's talk about Nazis for a second. Or actually, more specifically, you said the situation with Pittsburgh and some of the more incendiary rhetoric is different than some of the other stuff. Um, what were you thinking? Along yeah, those just
0: lines? in the sense that it requires a little more expansive context. The first thing I'd say is that if you're looking at the president's rhetoric and saying, how is that affecting people? There are different filters to view that. Sure. If you're looking at it, a legal filter or a social filter, even his enemies agree that you can't blame the talker for the person who did the bad act.
1: Hey, you're the guy with the gun. Right. You know, crazy is crazy. But if you viewed it
0: through a science lens and you've got millions of people listening to a message, are some of them going to be influenced in ways that are unproductive and dangerous? And the answer is yes, just about every time. Now, President Trump is surely the type of personality that could trigger people on the fringes, Mm -hmm. but I would say most presidents probably are. Uh, Probably most presidents have triggered people for their own reasons uh, to do things. Now, if you're looking at somebody who is triggered to in the case of the synagogue shooting, to attack people who the president clearly favors. I mean, he's been good to Israel. His family is Jewish. His, uh, his
1: daughter married someone yeah, who was Jewish right. and converted to Judaism. Yeah,
0: his, his advisors, you know, you can go around down. He, and the shooter actively disliked Trump, but he's still being, Trump is still being blamed for raising the temperature and
1: getting this uh, that kind of uh, What about the mail bomber? How do you define that guy?
0: Just um, Crazy. mental illness. Right. You know, there, it's always a problem to to say that we should change all of our behavior because there are some mentally deranged people who are going to take it wrong.
1: So, while all presidents say things that might affect some of the people on the extreme fringe. Trump seems to be much more incendiary than Obama or Bush or Clinton. I, I, th-
0: I think that's right. And you, I don't think that we should ignore that. And and the president should do whatever he, he needs to do with that. Uh, um, but let's also size it. I did a Twitter poll, which, of course, is deeply unscientific. Right. But I asked, what do you think causes people to act more violently? The president's rhetoric or fake news, video games or music. And what you find is that the president is in is in the same range, at least in people's opinions, with music and video games, which I also believe do trigger people if you're looking at a huge population. And yeah, you know, if a hundred million people are playing a video game where somebody gets shot, somebody's gonna shoot somebody. It's just so the question
1: happen. is, is it the video game or you take a hundred million people and statistically, there's going to be one crazy
0: it's, in that group. It's the price of free speech. Yeah. But you want to size it. Fake news can kill millions. I mean, fake news is a serious, serious So how do problem. you
1: define fake news? And Two ways. What, and now the reason I'm going to tee up this question very specifically, there's an inherent bias in all media operations from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal um, and peop, uh, entities on the far extreme. What is your definition of fake news?
0: So for me, fake news would be inaccurate news that especially the kind that they should have known or should have corrected. But that's kind of rare. There, there isn't that much of the like seriously fake news. The other kind is worse because it's changing how we're thinking about things. Mm-hmm. So if, if you talk uh, consistently about, uh, let's say, Russia, it will rise in people's minds in importance. That may be good but it may be bad. So the the media is changing the importance and the priority and how we, how we rank things.
1: The focus of perception. By the way, I meant to tell you, I know you're a big fan of Bob Cialdini who wrote Influence and Persuasion. It was fun reading his stuff and then reading your stuff because clearly he has influenced you.
0: Yes, he's influenced me a great deal, which makes sense. He wrote a book called you know, <laughs> Influence. Um, uh, yeah, he's probably one of my biggest influences, and, uh, you know, we've, we've, uh, we'd have have brief connection on Twitter, uh, exchange some professional compliments.
1: So, so the concept of reprioritizing and focusing comes from um, influence, comes from his book. You're saying what the media does, fake news, not so much false statements of fact, but changing or reprioritizing the subjects we're discussing.
0: Right, and then there's a hybrid, which is the, the worst case, in my opinion, this is the worst fake news maybe we'll ever see, short of actually starting a war. And that was what I call the Charlottesville hoax. Now the way which this- sh- is what? Uh, and it goes like this. When the president said there were fine people on both sides, the frame that should have been reported was both sides of the statue question. People want statues. People want them to come down. There are fine people on both sides of that, even if you disagree with their position. But because the news had framed it as Antifa against the white supremacist, right. they reported it as both sides being white supremacist and Antifa. And then they said, well, the president is calling the white supremacist fine people. So now I have now, to go back well, hold on, and hold on. Re- me, see that let, video. Yeah. Now, let me finish. finish. Now- In order to believe that, you would have to believe that he called the Antifa demonstrators fine people also, Mm because he said on both sides. That didn't happen. Second of all, there is no world in which the president of the United States got in front of the public and decided to side with the white supremacists by calling them fine people. In no world was that possible or did it happen. Indeed, when they asked him for clarification, he condemned the white supremacists. He clearly was not supporting them. And anybody who could have seen this objectively should have known that. But you can turn on CNN almost any day of the week, and there will be a pundit who will say, well, he called the white supremacists fine people. And nobody calls him on it. Nobody says, wait wait a minute. That was ambiguous. Obviously, he wasn't saying white supremacists or fine people. Because those white supremacists, for God's sakes, they were marching against it was an anti-Semitic demonstration. Yes, you know his daughter's Jewish. His, you know his his Son family's Jewish. Yeah. He's pro-Israel. Israel loves him. The, the very
1: f- very much so. By the way,
0: right more than any president probably.
1: amongst the Orthodox Jews. I think his approval rating is like ninety percent in the United States. Right, very very high.
0: So to think that he got in front of the public and made a choice to say, yeah, I think this will work out well for me. I'll go, I'll throw in with the white supremacists. That absolutely did not happen. But is is reported as fact by CNN, MSNBC, and I would say that that one event crystallized all the things that people worried about the president and put it into fact. So he and so and so that event more than anything else is ripping the fabric of the country apart, and it's despicable, and it's bordering on intentional.
1: So I have to now go back and rewatch that video because I didn't see it live. I just saw the clips. However- No, if, the, you, if you see the video,
0: that won't clear it up. You have to wait for him to, him to explain what he meant, that he mm-hmm. was disavowing them, and then you have to understand that the context was always two sides of the statute debate. That's what the whole event was about. So I'll,
1: I'll watch the whole thing. Part of the problem is that we bring past statements to what we do. So the whole birther controversy- very much looks like it's a racist trope, and he was key in that. Wait a
0: minute. W- w- why? Do you, you, I, I agree that people are perceiving it that way. Right. But are you saying that the facts support that as being a racist attack? Uh,
1: the first African-American president, clearly born in Hawaii, clearly tons of evidence that that's where he's from— Somehow he's a Muslim, or somehow he's a non-U.S. citizen. Right, well, I find that, that confusing.
0: Hold that the the I don't think the president was bringing up the the Muslim part. I believe the president was using a common attack that he uses for everybody. He, he said Ted not Cruz, born in the United States. He said Ted Cruz was a uh, Canadian.
1: Well, he was born in Canada, but to American parents and your dual citizen. So there. so
0: you see that the president uses every available attack against every. Opponent, without exception, huh. if he can say it, if he can throw it against the wall, and he thinks it will influence three voters, he's going to throw that against the wall. He oh. said, he said that Ted Cruz's father might have been involved in right. killing Chief. Kennedy. <laughs> now you don't believe he believed that, right? I, mean, I, I assume
1: that. nobody believes that. Right. So let but, me throw another one at you, which I think is fascinating. Uh, John Stewart of The Daily Show. Uh, there was a episode where he attacks Trump. I think it was for how he cut pizza. Something idiotic. And Trump tweets John Liebowitz, also known as John Stewart. Now I interpreted that as, "Hey, everybody in Hollywood and everybody on TV changes their name. You're bringing up a very Jewish name. That sounds like a dog whistle to the anti-Semites. Tell me why that's wrong."
0: Uh, it sounds to me like he was calling him a phony. In other words, he wasn't. He wasn't true to his own heritage. Like
1: everybody else in show business. Right. But
0: the fact, the, the, you know, don't get caught up in the logic of the fact of it. Okay. It, it was something he could say to make him with. And he just
1: throws everything. He opens the cannon fodder and right. that's it. Whatever yeah, he can if, throw, he throws.
0: Yeah. If you if you see him going easy on opponents who happen to be white males, let me know because I haven't noticed that.
1: He Well, low energy Jeb and Lion Ted and what did he call Rubio? Tiny Marco or something like right. that. He he. But it seems like it's not religious or racial. It Cry, just seems that. Crying and Chuck. I mean, right? you know, if if you are someone who
0: insults everybody with every tool that you have at your disposal all the time, if you're picking out that one example and say, "Well, he's this one's black, right. so it must be racist," that is not based in fact. That he just been, machine
1: guns everybody, and that's you, that.
0: You, your bias is showing through in that.
1: Uh, so I have my favorite questions I ask all my guests, but I have one more question I have to get to you because people are – you. Uh, I see why you are um, annoyed by the tweet streams that come at you. You said earlier you're to the left of Bernie. Correct. How, how do you define left-right that you're to the left of Bernie Sanders? Let me give We're talking some, Bernie Sanders, right? I yeah, know. Bernie Sanders.
0: All right. So let me give you some examples. Uh, on abortion – Conservatives would like to limit it. Uh, liberals would like you know more of it with certain conditions. I'm left of that, which is I say that men and me in particular should abstain from the decision and just support women. And the reason is that women bear the greatest responsibility for mm-hmm. childbirth and child rearing. And as a general standard, the people who take on the biggest responsibility, especially for something so important, should have the greatest say. That's a and, pretty
1: progressive perspective. Right,
0: and, and, my, and to think that men should have somehow an equal say in what women do with their bodies as a law is ridiculous. Because first of all, it assumes that men are adding something to the, to the quality of the decision Nothing like that's happening. Right. We're not adding to the quality of the decision. But what society needs is a decision because it's life and death. Because it's one of our biggest issues. You need a you need an outcome that's credible, so that even the people who don't like it say, yeah. But the way you got there, that's a good at least a, at least it's credible. Even though I don't like it.
1: G- if, give us another example, because I'm fascinated by this.
0: Let's take. Um, uh, reparations. Okay. Conservatives don't like it. Even most liberals would not be in favor of it because they'd feel like, uh, I don't want to pay for something that wasn't my fault. Right. Um, I say we should at least consider to solve one of our biggest social problems to have a 1% tax on, ju- uh, I'm sorry, a tax on just the top 1%. So that would include people like me. And it would be a 25 year, let's say a one generation tax on, only to make college and trade training free for African-Americans for one generation. So that we could say, look, we're, we recognize there was something bad. We can do something about it. Now, well, here's what's special. The top 1% also have nothing, most of them, have nothing to do with slavery. Mm-hmm. Their their ancestors weren't involved at sure. all. But what's different is the top 1%, if they can make a big difference in what's in the, let's say, the most disadvantaged part of society. If you can flip somebody from being unemployed to employed, that is a huge boost to the economy. Sure. And who benefits from that? Everyone. The top 1%. Sure. We, we live in, in in a society where the top 1% gets most of the gain.
1: Give us one more example, and then I'll go jump to my favorite questions. Oh. Scott, Scott Adams, Adam, socialist. Yeah, let's
0: take uh, healthcare. <clears throat> healthcare, the Conservatives say uh, let the market work it out, more or less. Mm-hmm. The liberals say let the government, you know, handle it. Regulate the market a little. Yeah. I say the government should be more involved, uh, which is that we should be creating a portfolio, uh, meaning just a conceptual portfolio of startups that could lower the cost of healthcare in the future. Mm-hmm. So if the president said, look. I'm gonna give you a running list of companies that if they did well, your healthcare costs would go down. Right. So the government, I think, could be more involved than just being single-payer. They could be directly involved in boosting that part of the uh, the startup uh, world that will directly help things.
1: Scott Adams, you are a fascinating and complex individual. <laughs> and And I've enjoyed our conversation. Let's jump to our speed round. I'll try and get through as many of these questions as quickly as possible. Tell us the most important thing we don't know about you.
0: Wow. I live such a public life that that's a very small category. Um, things you don't know about me. I'm learning to play the drums because I think it will be good
1: for my brain as I reach my older years. Uh, I'm with you. It's just adding to that that talent stack. Um, who are some of your early mentors? Obviously, this Cassidy gentleman has to be one. Yeah,
0: Jack Cassidy, as I mentioned before. Uh, my college roommate... Mike Chorley. Uh, Weirdly, I got into college without knowing much about the world, and he sort of taught me what it was like to be a a functioning person. Functioning human being. Uh, And then my first editor, uh, Sarah Gillespie, who's the one who called me and offered me the first contract.
1: Uh, Any specific cartoonists that influenced uh, the way you approached Dilbert? Yeah. you mentioned Charles Schultz,
0: Sergio Aragonis, who does who did the little characters in the margins of Mad magazine. Oh, sure, they were fantastic. Yeah, Gary Larson, of course. I stole his technique of uh, drawing characters that don't have necks. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. And probably those are the big ones. I, yeah, I would say Schultz and and Gary Larson.
1: Uh, favorite books? We mentioned Bob Cialdini. What what are some of your favorite books? Be they fiction, nonfiction, cartoonist related, or other? Oh man, Uh, Impossible to
0: Ignore is good, teaches you how to uh, do memorable presentations and slideshows and stuff by uh, Dr. Carmen Simon. Um, I'm reading uh, Sapiens now. I like it so far, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to like the rest of it. You
1: will find the second book, Homo Deus, to be very, very dark, um, where this one isn't very dark.
0: Well, okay. Just an FYI. Maybe I'll stay away from that one. Um, and then, as we mentioned, Cialdini's book, Influence, and then his follow-up book, his newer one, Persuasion. Yes. Those I would consider absolute fundamental reading for anybody in the business world. If you haven't read those books, you're, you're disadvantaged, hmm. just period. I wouldn't say that about many books. And then, then my books, Win Bigly and How to Win at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, would be, I consider, fundamental reading on
1: Persuasion. What what are you excited about right now?
0: Right now, I'm working with uh, Bill Pulte on something called the um, the Blight Authority. Blight meaning B L I G H T. The the rundown inner cities areas. Mm -hmm. What he's he's doing with his nonprofit is helping cities clear out big contiguous areas, uh, and then I'm helping him try to figure out you know can we attract some ideas because ideas are the bigger problem than money. Nobody knows what to do. So we're, we're trying to come up with some ideas to uh, help the inner cities and
1: productively use that space. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Wow. Um, you mentioned the restaurant in how to fail at everything and still win. Yeah. I thought that was interesting.
0: So almost everything I failed at um, was something I chose that would teach me something along the way. So. Uh, the first time I gave a corporate speech, when I was paid way too much to give a speech, <laughs> uh, when Dilbert was just taking off and you know the speaking requests come in, and I didn't know how to be a public speaker, but I took the deal. I did really, really poorly, and then they paid me. And I thought, wait a minute. I did really, really poorly, in my opinion, and then they paid me. So I thought, well, maybe I should do more of this, and maybe I could get good at it. And you know, eventually I was one of the top corporate speakers in America
1: what do you do for fun
0: uh well my girlfriend Christina and I spend a lot of time together and um, mostly it's whatever couples do you know go out to dinner
1: travel sounds like fun uh someone comes to you a millennial a recent college grad and they're interested in becoming a cartoonist what sort of advice would you give them
0: Well, I would tell them, first of all, develop their talent stack. So I would tell them to concentrate on writing even more than the art. I would tell them to create online and see if they can build an audience. I would tell them to change their art based on what the audience is telling them is working or not. I would tell them to know exactly who they're targeting their art to and not try to be a generic oh, everybody will love this, because that's kind of rare these days. Mm -hmm. But rather to say, as I did, this is a comic for the workplace. This is a comic for pet owners. This is a comic for single people, whatever it is.
1: Makes perfect sense. Final question. What do you know about the world of cartoonists today you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were first starting, Dilbert?
0: I did not know that the main thing you have to get right is that the uh, the reader looks at your comic and says, oh, that happened to me too. If you don't get that part right, you don't have anything. Now, there was a day when that wasn't true. The old style of humor was sort of more absurdist and more generic. But in today's world, people just have to say, oh, that's me, or
1: they don't care. Fascinating. We have been speaking with Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. And you could see any of the approximately 250 such conversations we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this together each week. Medina Parwana is my producer. Adika Valbrun is our project manager. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.